Welcome to the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. I'm Ross. And I'm Gordon. And um, you indicated to me that we should talk about accessories that ease or potentially improve your our macro photography. That sounds good to me. Was there anything that you had in mind in particular? Oh, I have all kinds of things in mind. Uh, mostly uh, because I found that in reading about this stuff, you sort of get bits and pieces of information. And I'm hoping that we can choose the best of the best and put it into some kind of a list and uh, pass it on to our faithful or otherwise readers and listeners. We said we were going to focus on the accessories, and not just as a means of separating people from their money, but something that's genuinely going to uh, help improve their macro photography. I guess we should start with a macro lens. Uh, what is it? Why does it work? And how's it going to help you? Okay, that's a very good place to start. Most of the lenses that we're going to encounter as photographers will allow close focus. Typically no more than about one quarter life size. This is less than about how physically close you're going to get and more about the percentage or ratio to life size between reality, your subject, and how much space it occupies on the sensor. A dedicated macro lens can often deliver magnification without any accessories up to one times life size, so physically four times bigger on the sensor. This means that if you have a subject that's roughly, let's say, 36 by 24 millimeters, it will fill the frame completely on a full-frame sensor. Thus, every millimeter in life uses the same millimeter count on the sensor itself. Yeah, I, I get that, and that's what all the literature says. Or rather, I've read all this kind of stuff. But in simple terms, what makes a macro lens focusing down to, let's say, 7 centimeters produce a 1 to 1 ratio and another lens that focuses down to the same distance but only provides a 1 to 4 ratio? And to muddy the waters even further, there are macro lenses or lenses that are called macro lenses that cannot deliver one times life size without any accessories. So what's different out here? Okay, so there's, you're right, there's a lot of nomenclature marketing that happens. We often see lenses, often zoom lenses that'll say macro zoom. But they're not macro lenses. They don't get to one times life size. They're only going to get to one quarter, rarely one third life size. So the fundamental difference between a true macro lens and a lens that provides close focusing, but not life size, is construction. So we're concerned about the quality of the focus field when we talk about a true macro lens. If we look at most of our traditional lenses, we're going to see that they have curved elements. Sometimes those are big curved elements. And those lenses are less likely to hold focus, the closer they get, across the image circle that they project on the sensor. They optimize for the center of the lens and depend upon depth of field to handle the variance. But when we get super close, as you know, the depth of field is nearly non-existent. Mm -hmm. it's, that is. it's nearly negligible. So that's not going to be enough. Also, we need to consider that the first macro lenses were developed not to photograph bugs or flowers, but to image small, flat things, such as parts of documents, signatures, stamps, coins, paper money, and subjects like that. If the subject is flat, 
you require sharp focus from edge to edge, not from not just in the center. And so when we look at the elements in a macro lens, we will typically find the elements to be flatter and have less curvature. This has changed somewhat since the early days of macro lenses, but it still holds true. This means that the elements are also smaller. And so consequently, most macro lenses are optically slower than what we might encounter in non-macros of the same advertised focal length. These lenses that allow close-up photography, that's not a bad thing. But the category says one times life size for true macro. So there's some marketing happening. If we accept that macro is one times life size, or again, marketing in Nikon terminology, micro lenses, that's one times or greater. Less than that is close up. But magnification is only one element that goes into a macro lens. So we can allow some latitude in terms of how these devices are described. Okay. Uh, so can you give us uh, some examples of this latitude that uh, we allow to change the nomenclature? It bothers me when uh, things are supposed to be the same, but they're not, or they're different, but are still considered to be the same, and it's confusing to me. I think it's confusing to everybody. Uh, for many, many years, I would hear people say that they just bought a macro lens only to find that they'd been sold a zoom lens with some close focus capability, and then they were disappointed when they couldn't get the shots that they saw in books about macro photography because the lens simply couldn't do it. Macro lenses by design have very, very fine pitched focusing helicoids. They need this because at one times life size, depth of field is literally razor thin. And so the focusing mechanism has to be super precise, far more precise than what we see in traditional lenses that depend on depth of field to cover any slack in the focusing mechanism. These extra long, fine-picked helicoids allow this level of precision and focus because you require it at one times magnification and greater. You don't have the option for any sloppiness. Depth of field is super shallow, even if you're using a very small aperture. So we need that level of pre precision. Because the helicoid is so precise and so finely pitched, we also will experience that in an autofocus environment, a macro lens up close will take longer to find focus than a non-macro lens because we're physically doing more motor movement inside the lens. Okay. See, I had I had not did not realize that. So from what you have said, then that one of the things that defines a macro lens is they have a very fine focusing mechanism. So when the manufacturers set out to produce a macro lens and they produce a really good macro lens, why is there a need for them to produce essentially the same lens, but in a different focal length? Let's go back to this concept of magnification. Okay. Let's suppose that you had a standard lens on your camera. What would that be? Like a 25 mil or something like that? Sure. 25 for me would be everybody else's nifty 50. And yeah. Uh, yeah. But that looks, looks to you that things are about the same distance as what your eye sees, correct? Correct. Now, if you put a 200 millimeter lens on your camera, mm -hmm. that makes things look eight times closer. Yes. So there we're talking about a difference in magnification with a difference in focal length. Right. That falls down when we get to macro. So now if I've got a, what's the focal length of the macro lens for your system? It's a, uh, it's a 60, so effective 120. Right. Okay. So in Nikon and Canon's full frame lines, theirs are 100 typically. Yes. But they also have 50s or 60s or 40s. They still all achieve one times magnification, 
And Belkan and Nikon also have a 180 true macro. Okay. Well, if it's all one times life size, why do I need all these focal lengths? That's your question. Yes. In this case, it comes down to what we call standoff distance. Oh, With the longer focal length construction, I can be further away from the subject and still achieve the one times life size. Or closer, depending on the focal length I choose. Right. So myself, I own 100 millimeter macros. But I also own a 180 mil macro. Right. Because sometimes that allows me to get one times life size without having to be super close to the subject. Okay, yes. And that might be more convenient to the photographer. I don't want to get down on my knees or the ground is wet or full of broken something or other. Or my subject might be hostile. Yep. Subject may not want me to be that close. Yep. So I can still get my one times life size. Without getting inside the subject's safety zone, safety zone, personal space, whatever you might call it. Sure. Okay. So allow me to summarize what we have just started, discussed because I only digest information in small bites. So what I think you've said now is that all macro lenses are close focusing, but not all close focusing are macro. True. And macro lenses are characterized by a flat focus plane, right from one edge to the other edge. Correct. They have precise focusing mechanisms for reasons that you have discussed, because they're absolutely essential. Correct. And though the close focusing can be mimicked by other good lenses... But the definition of macro remains that it should produce a one-to-one ratio to be a true macro lens. That is correct. Okay, so I've had friends ask me about the utility of using extension tubes for macro. But they are concerned of the loss of image quality with their use. Comments on... Well, it's not true. An extension tube has no impact whatsoever on image quality. All the tube is doing is moving the lens itself further away from the sensor. This provides the capability for increased magnification because that's how optics work. You get more magnification, but the price you pay is that you can no longer focus to infinity. Okay. Mm-hmm. When the lens is mounted directly to the camera, it will do one-to-one out to infinity. As soon as we introduce extension tubes, we get more magnification, but we give up infinity focus. Now, if we're doing macro photography, we don't care. Infinity focus at that point is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. An extension okay. tube is just a tube. It's like a can with the ends cut off. There's nothing in it. It has no glass and cannot impact image quality unless it's a really crappy extension tube that is not flat black inside and is generating a bunch of internal reflections. Mm -hmm. But that's not a tube thing. That's a manufacturer quality issue. What the buyer of a set of tubes should be doing is be concerned about the build quality, the reliability, the durability of the lens mount. Make sure that it locks in place. We've seen tubes that don't lock the lenses in place properly and stuff falls off and bounces off the ground. That's really, really bad. We also want to make sure if we're using electronic cameras with electronic aperture control. Oh, wait, that'd be everything. That'd be everything, yes. And if we're trying to use autofocus, most people are, we have to be very concerned that the electronic coupling that the tube is providing between the lens and the camera body is working properly all the time. Okay. Because otherwise you can't set an aperture. Right. Otherwise you are in pure manual focus mode. You have to be careful. There's some really, really crappy tubes out there. Now that doesn't mean you then must go out and spend hundreds of dollars on the manufacturer-branded tube. 
it's just a tube. So if you go in and buy the manufacturer branded tube, you're probably assured of a proper mount and good coupling, but you're going to pay through the nose. Right. Typically four times for one what you would pay for a set of three right. regular tubes. But there, there are other non-manufacturer tubes that have actually remarkably good quality. Is Absolutely that, uh, there are. Absolutely. Okay. So to get back to the extension tubes, it's the same sort of question as the why are they producing macro lenses in different focal lengths? They usually sell them in packs of two or three. May sell them as more, but I, I'm familiar with two and three. Yep. So why? What? What is the advantage of having a, having a selection of tubes? And how does this help you with your photography? Well, this is another excellent question that you raise. When we go back in time, we use Mr. Peabody's Wayback Machine, for those who <laughs> remember Sherman and Mr. Peabody, and for those who don't, look it up. The way we used to move lenses away from the camera body was on an accordion type of thing called a bellows. Mm-hmm. The bellows was a r- mounted on a rail, the camera mounted on one end to the bellows, and then you move the bellows along the rail, and it had the lens attached at the front of it. And so you could think of as a bellow of a bellows as a variable length extension tube. Okay, yes. However, there's no coupling on okay. the bellows. Right. No aperture control, no focus control. So what manufacturers wanted to do was to give the capability, sort of, of a bellows, but without giving up the electronic coupling. Okay. Also, tubes are much less expensive to make than a bellows and rail system. And that's where extension tubes come from. But that means that their length is fixed. And so we find extension tubes primarily coming in sets, as you say, of two or three. The set I use is three tubes. One is 12 millimeters long. One is 24 millimeters long. One is 36 millimeters long. So I can use them individually or I could stack them together to increase the distance from the lens of the lens from the sensor. The further I push the lens away, the more magnification I get, greater than life size. Okay. However, what do I also give up? Depth of field. Depth of field. It's now literally razor thin. Mm-hmm. And this may engender the requirement to do other things, such as focus stacking. Yes. In order, if I want any kind of depth in my photo at all. Right. So, if I understand correctly now, extension tubes by themselves do nothing. But they can be inserted between a lens that you already own to increase the magnification abilities of the lens. And they can also do the same thing to a high magnification macro to produce a greater than a one-to-one magnification. That's correct. So let's go back to the concept of the nifty 50 or in your case, the 25 mil. Let's okay. suppose that's mm-hmm. the only lens you've got and you want to get closer, more magnification, than you can natively. You could certainly use a tube or set of tubes with that to allow you to get physically closer and get more magnification. Mm-hmm. Or you could use the tubes with a lens that already goes one, to- one times life size to get more. Right. Two times life size, maybe two and a half times life size. So... The tubes are not relegated solely to use with a macro lens, although you'll get the greatest amount of magnification increase if you use them there. Okay. So this sounds like everybody's answer to a problem, but I believe a certain amount of caution is necessary because you need to do some experimenting and to get down on your knees and pray a bit and push that lens around 
and do some fairly hard work to appreciate how close you can get. Because when I started off with this, I, I, I said, uh, thinking to myself that I had taken sound advice, I thought, and I had things that I couldn't get to focus and I, I couldn't get my autofocus to work and I couldn't get the manual focus. It, it's all there, but it takes work. And remember, there's no depth of field, so be, if you're thinking of hand-holding something like that, probably not a good idea. And remember the critters that we talk about that sometimes don't like you being that close. So just uh, so the choices needed to be made with using extension tubes all the time. You have a choice of getting magnification or a choice of distance, but the chances are good that you're not going to get them both in the same setup. Very true, and that's why the longer focal length true macro lenses can also benefit from tubes mm -hmm. because they already give you a decent standoff distance. Right. You're still going to have to move closer with tubes, but maybe not so close that the hornet you're photographing decides that it needs to stick its butt stinger into your body, which is bad. Yeah, that, it's very uncomfortable. And hornets <laughs> are, they're just evil. Okay, so we've talked about extension tubes. You talked about what makes a macro lens a macro lens. What about these focusing rails I keep hearing about? Uh, I see pictures of them periodically. Uh, but it's not clear to me why I would need something like that if my autofocus seems to be working fine. Okay, let me ask you a question. Have you ever, when you're using autofocus on any lens, had, had it hunt? Oh, yes. Okay. Why is it hunting? Lack of illumination and lack of depth of field. Right. How much okay. depth of field do we have when we're doing true macro? None. <laughs> and so how many focus points could we possibly hope to use for macro? We could hope to use one. Because otherwise hunting is going to be a real problem. Yes. By then, the hornet has built a nest, <laughs> had a family, <laughs> its relatives have come, and you're going to the hospital in anaphylactic shock. So why a focus rail? Well, first off, Originally, these close-up lenses had no focusing on them at all. Right. There was no focus ring. They had an aperture ring. That's it. And the only way that you focus them was to move the entire combination of camera lens back and forth on a precision-geared rail. That's all the focusing rail is. Right. It's a mechanism to move the entire assembly back and forth until... You find the focus, and because it's very pr precise, you're turning this very precise gear, and it's completely obvious to you through the viewfinder, or if you're using your LCD, there's my point of focus. Yep. And there's my depth of field, or lack thereof. Right. When our lenses were all manual focus, they did provide much finer control over focus than any autofocus lens does. Autofocus lenses are sloppy focusers. They depend on depth of field to deliver fast autofocus performance. Right. But we would still use a focus rail because, again, that micro movement was more precise than what we would find in the focus ring on those old, awesome manual focus lenses. Right. Today, if I'm using autofocus lenses, I'm going to turn it off. Okay. And I'm going to focus manually, but I know how sloppy those helicoids can be. So I'll not only focus manually, and I will use that on a rail. Right. So I get to choose exactly where the point of focus is. And for one times and greater, I really like a focus rail system. But in my case, because at that close range, if I'm... Even if I can get things in focus, if I'm misaligned from a compositional perspective side to side, 
Right. And I try to move the tripod. Oh, it's... It's gone to another county. Yeah. So I like a focus system that's dual rail. So one for back and forth and one for side to side. Right. And that allows me to manipulate composition as well as focus. The only thing it can't change is camera lens height. Right. But at that point, I'm relegated to working with my tripod and time spent and the expression of joy (laughs) in languages and words not allowed on public podcasts. Right. So I find that the focusing rail very useful. I really, really like them if I know going in, I'm going to do focus stacking. Because the mechanism for focus stacking without a rail is, in my opinion, goofy. Okay. Because I'm focusing manually, and then I'm going to turn the focusing ring to get a different part of focus. Right. How much? Mm, who knows? It's uh, depending on what you, how many slices you're going to make. And how many slices you're going to make. And do I know that every turn of the helicoid that I make manually is going to be bang on correct? I don't. Right. So with the focusing rail, it's really easy. I, I don't know how much rotation I'm applying to a, a, a focus ring in this kind of close-up scenario. So I'm just going to look at the, the ruler, I guess, the chart, the gauge, whatever yeah. word mm-hmm. it is yeah. I can't think of right now, on the focus rail, and I'm going to say, okay, for every frame, because my depth of field is literally razor thin, right. I'm going to go one notch, whatever a notch is. Sure. And move, shot, move, shot, move, shot, move, shot. This is going to give me very, very precise alterations in where the depth of field and the point of focus falls. Right. And then the more shots that I have, the better the job that my focus stacking application will do. And when I do this, I'm not saying everybody has to do it, but I'm probably in a situation where I've got the macro lens with tubes because I'm trying for really big magnification. Right. I'm on a solid tripod. I've got the rails mounted to my very solid ball head. And then I'm going to take a whole stack of images, more than I think I'm going to need. Right. Use as small movement as I possibly can, that I can judge. That's what the gauge is for. Right. Then I'll feed the whole set into... Uh, the product I per- personally prefer, not so that everybody should use it, uh, is called Helicon Focus. And I've consistently gotten an excellent solid final image with very precise focus everywhere that I placed the plane of focus. Right. Now, there, uh, you know, I know you can do focus stacking in Photoshop, for example. Right. I've had more success with a specialized application, but that's just me. Sure. I'm thinking of my my own uh, approach to to macro, and what I've consistently had trouble with is uh, using it uh, is getting one to one magnification, and getting it in focus at the same time. Uh, just for the reasons that we've talked about, the camera is on is on a tripod. Um, Yes, I'm reasonably close, but I'm not at one-to-one. And the way my lens works is that you have the ability to set it on one-to-one magnification and then move back and forth until you get it in focus. But I've never been able to do that. I'm either too close, too far, too too much to one side. And I could see that even just for basic macro, to have something like this where you get close, you put it on one-to-one macro, and then you twiddle the knob until you get things in focus, provided, of course, the, whatever you're focusing on hasn't moved and gone away. And I would, I would concur with that. You know, the rail system I use comes from really right stuff, and I won't get anybody. It's expensive. Yeah. But prior to that, Manfrotto makes a really good quality focusing rail that's quite inexpensive. Right. So in the old days, I just bought two of them, mounted them perpendicular to each other, and there's my back, forth, left, right focus rail. Right. 
uh, considerably less expensive than my really right stuff system. Right. So oh. there, there, there are uh, good ones, and there are mediocre ones, and there are awful ones. And uh, you need to do some background um, ask, ask around and hope you find somebody with uh, good experience who will tell you which ones you can get that will not break the bank. Exactly. We've got macro lenses, we've got extension tubes. What about lighting? These things hide in the dark all the time. How, how can we light our macro stuff? Well, let me ask you a question. How would you light non-macro stuff? Using a flash usually. Right. Flash is what I'm most comfortable with, and uh, well, it's what I have. Uh, we talked about uh, the use of uh, LED panels. That we did. Uh, that would be another good way. Uh, reflectors, things, things that shine in the dark, right. flashlights, whatever. But the idea is you're bringing a source of light in. Yes. Okay, so do I absolutely need a light? Well, that depends on your use cases and your goals. But for me, I'm going to say yes. And the, in my opinion, the best route for true macro, where you're in really, really, really close, is a device that mounts right to the lens called ring light. Right. And this can be flash or LED flash tube, pardon me, or LED based. Um, it's a ring with a light in it, and you've probably mm -hmm. seen them on you know Amazon and places like that for people who do vlogging. Right. Those are not bright enough for macro. Right. They'll need a longer shutter speed, but the concept is about the same. You don't have to spend a fortune on them. You can buy the manufacturer's brand ring light. But you can also go out and uh, Nissan does a really nice one. And Godox, uh, in the last two weeks, just released um, a ring light configuration for their AD200 flash, the one that you can take the, the flash tube off. Right. Uh, the big battery pack is nowhere near the camera. Right. And this ring mounts to the front of your lens. And the beauty of this is that they're going to produce a very flat very low contrast light source because it's at the front of the lens. But right. it wraps around everything. Right. They're also going to be much bigger. The light field is going to be much bigger than the subject. So the light is soft. Right. And then they tend to be have a, a diffuser to spread the light out. So you get an even light spread across your very small field of view. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I prefer the flash because it brings more power to the table and that means shorter shutter open times at smaller apertures, which reduces the chance of subject movement from ruining my shot. Some folks have been known to say that flash ring lights scare critters. I haven't met a critter yet that it annoyed. They really didn't this see it at all. That's, that's true, and I guess if you're when you're at that level, you're, you're shooting at fairly low power on your flash. Yeah, you're only shooting with enough power to give you the proper exposure. And these ring lights will work with DTL flash or manual flash, you choose. Right. Uh, some ring lights, uh, like the one I'm using, allow ratio control. So hmm. it's not a single tube, it's two tubes. Right. And so I can set a flash ratio and... For whatever reason, I can say, I want a four-to-one ratio where my main tube is full power. My, let's call it the left side tube. Right side is full power. Left side is going to be quarter power. And because they're rings, I can rotate them and I can change where my dominant light is if I want some kind of lighting ratio from the ring flash. So it's giving you the effect of having... Uh, possibly an off-camera flash or possibly two off-camera flashes. In fact, By... it's, it's very much like two two off-camera flashes. Okay, so because you can adjust them, so you're getting your... Sh 
you're getting the texture and the demarcation of the critter or whatever it is you're without uh, well without having a, a cumbersome setup correct uh, correct so oh dear. if yes. you're looking at that no money going down the drain <laughs> and if you're looking at that um, Nissan does a really good one that I did a review on uh, Sigma has had I don't know if they still make it they had a brilliant one um, that did TTL as well as manual it's up to the artist whether or not they're going to use this kind of device but my take is if I'm going to be crawling in around trying to get a photograph of something that's very small because it's never at my eye level no 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 it's going to be someplace where I'm going to have to climb or crouch or crawl I don't want to be there without enough light yep and I don't want to be there with something that's going to be spotty and harsh and high contrast like a loom cube or a flashlight I like soft light right so that's my choice. Just uh, so these ring lights, they fit on the end of your lens. Correct. But lenses come in different diameters. Correct. So do you need one for each size lens? Or only, well, I guess you would only get it for the macro lens. You get it for... Typically, they'll fit most every lens you have because they'll come with a set of step rings, ah. mounting rings. So okay. just as we might use step rings to buy one polarizer only, right. you'll get rings that come with the ring light so you can use it on different filter diameter lenses and then the ring clips to that directly. Okay. That makes sense. Okay, so... What about other other things, other techy things that uh, you think might be of use to somebody going into macro photography? Well, I I'm at the point in my life that being on crouched on my knees or squatting for an extended period of time gives me physical pain. Mm-hmm. everybody and so, being at the LCD is not really the most comfortable thing for me. Okay. And there can be situations where I just can't get there because of where I've had to put the camera. Mm-hmm. Now, the good news is all of our cameras today have HDMI out. Yes. So, I'll pack in my bag... You know, a six or seven foot, maybe a 10 foot HDMI cable. And then a battery powered LCD display. Now I'm using a, a small HD right now, uh, is, the, is the brand. And it's a five inch diagonal display. I could mount it on a tripod. I could put it on a stand. I can hold it in my hand. Right. And now I can be in a more comfortable position with my remote trigger, seeing exactly what the lens is seeing without being down behind the camera or up behind the camera. Right. I find that these displays are super valuable for a lot of things, for macro, for me at least, because of physical challenges, it's, it's a requirement. Now, I don't think you have to spend a lot of money on these things. You can get 5-inch and 7-inch diagonal displays. Uh, companies like Lilliput do them for around 200 bucks, And they're going to have additional good functions. And you can even get some that are a little bit more expensive that will act as an off-board video recorder. Okay. As well as a display. So it's th- something like an Atomos Ninja is both a display... And a recorder. Okay. And because it's a video recorder, it has certain functions like RGB waterfalls and, you know, the focus aid tools that we find in video Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that we don't find in stills. 
scopes are equally useful for stills as for video. And so you can make better decisions and get the shot right in the camera rather than saying, well, I'll just grab whatever and I'll fix it in Photoshop. Right. Well, you probably can fix it in Photoshop, but to me, and this is only my opinion, I'd rather get it right in the camera. Right. So I don't have to edit every damn thing. So I do recommend these little displays. All I suggest is if you choose to buy one, get one of the ones that will use the uh, Sony NP rechargeable lithium-ion style packs. Right. You don't have to buy the Sony batteries. They're a third party that are very cheap. They're the same batteries that I talked about for the video lights right. when we did our video light exercise. Yes. Many camera systems now are all coming with software that allows connection and manipulation from your cell phone. Right, that's true. So would the cell phone screen do in a pinch? Of course it would. I just don't have that capability. Okay. My, my cameras are old. Right. And they're old enough that the software is unreliable or the cameras don't have Wi-Fi at all. Right. Okay. Uh, the reason I ask is because I, I have... Olympus does make this program. Supposedly allows you to do all these fancy things. I hear proponents of Olympus talking about you. You can use this program to do this. So far, I have not been able to get my camera to do any of the things they've told me it does. But if I ever do get it working, I can see that that would be a really useful thing to to have in that situation. Absolutely. I know that um, because I have a number of friends who've made the move to Canon mirrorless, uh, to Nikon mirrorless or Nikon DSLR. You know, when I was doing reviews... I gave Nikon a really hard time with their wireless remote application. But to their credit, they worked and worked and worked on it to when I last reviewed it, which was a while ago, and probably with the D850, it was spectacularly good mm. and really reliable. And I'm told that people are using the Canon one with their iPad. Well, there you go. So a nice big display... It's wireless. There's no cables to run. That sounds awesome to me. But in my case, I don't have that capability. Sure. So I depend on a tried and true, no battery wired method. So yes, that's the stuff that is available. But we can also use what we all carry in our hip pockets. Okay, so I have to ask. And then I will duck because I know what your answer is going to be. What about those close-up filters? Duck! Uh, the answer is simple. No. Never. Okay. You get better quality cutting the bottom off a Coke bottle, or a Pepsi bottle if you can find one, <laughs> and holding it up near the front of the lens. There is nothing good that I can say about close-up filters of any kind, including... The ones that Canon sells for $250 US per. Ugh. I'm afraid that anybody who spent the money on that, they're going to need to see a surgeon to get that fish hook <laughs> out of their jaw. Because you got fished bad. Okay, so now that you've given us your honest opinion about close-up lenses, <laughs> anything else that you... Think you might have missed yeah uh, and the reason I say yeah is because if I'm going to go do macro photography it's probably not a casual exercise because yeah, I'm going to be carrying this tripod and this rail system and the ring light and all that other stuff so I'm going to take some other stuff with me um, one of the things that I like best is cinefilm black cinefilm um, because it's so wonderful and if you've never seen cinefilm I can order it online, like aluminum foil, except it's black. It's okay. flat black. It doesn't reflect anything. So, and it's thick, so I can use it as a background to isolate my subject from the other crap that's behind it that is out of focus and maybe bright. 
I can use it as a windbreak. I like the $1.99 bag of 40 wooden clothes pegs. They are reliable. I can use them to hold stuff out of the way or to hold a reflector card. You mentioned the use of a reflector. Yes. And particularly for flowers, you know, you might want to slide a reflector underneath it. Yes. To throw some light back up into the petals. Um, there is a device that I think is brilliant. I've had several. I've loaned them all, and they're all gone. <laughs> uh, and it's from Wimberley, the people who make the gimbals. It's called the Plamp. And it's basically a... Uh, it's a spring clamp. And if you grew up in the 60s or 70s, you would have seen these around. They were sometimes referred to as a roach clip. <laughs> and it's on the end of this flex arm. And it's perfect for holding stuff out of the way without damaging it. So like when we go out to do macro photography, we shouldn't be going with a chainsaw and clearing you know, the forest just so we can get our, our bug or our flower shot. We want to leave nothing behind but footprints. Really, that's our should be our goal. And so tools like the plant and the clothespins help us get that awkward stuff out of the way. I like 3x5 or 4x6 index cards because they're cheap, and I don't care if they get damaged. They're white, and they make great little reflectors. Great. And if I've got something that's really small, a 3x5 card is an enormous background. Yep. You know, <laughs> relatively speaking, right? Right. If I'm doing flowers or foliage or spider webs, for example, a little I will make the time to pack in a separate plastic bag a little spritzer bottle of glycerin and water. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. Why glycerin? Because it just sticks. It holds the water beads in place. Whereas water on its own would tend to run. You have to be careful with spider webs, though, because you don't want to tear them. Yep. That's aggravating to the spider who worked really hard to make it. But you want to create a sense of maybe dew or moisture or something like that. Clistering and water is, you know, really, really good for that okay. sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I found that I could go on Amazon, so I no longer need to bother my dentist for used dental tools. And I bought a set of picks because they're small, pointy, right. and I can use them to move things around if I'm preparing a shot. Right. Well, I want to move this here. I want to move this fallen seed to this location. Right. I'm constructing a shot just as I would in a studio, but I'm going to do it in the field. And a set of these picks is like 10 bucks. Don't okay. clean your own teeth with them. <laughs> I'm sure that they're not good for that. The instructions usually say something like, good teeth, clean pick thing. <laughs> I like to throw a white towel in the bag. We've talked about this before. Oh, yeah. Even for night shooting, I put it on the ground to protect my stuff from getting wet. If the ground's damp, it also protects my bag. But for me, it helps me not leave stuff behind. Because yep. I put it on the white towel, if I'm smart, not on the ground, where I will lose it. Yep. Because invariably, I stay longer than I planned. Mm -hmm. The light gets crappy and I lose stuff. Yep. For sure. I find that those Ziploc freezer bags are a great way to store stuff. Right on them with Sharpies. Yep. And you just keep them on your shelf. Yep. And that makes it easy to pack the bag and unpack the bag. When you're not doing macro stuff, you don't have to carry all this crap around right. with you. Mm -hmm. I do like a small can of air, compressed air, or a blower to try to manage pollen. You know, if you've got a lot of pollen that has fallen into the flower you're photographing, maybe you don't want that. Right. If you do, it doesn't matter. But if you don't, this is a good way to get rid of it. That's kind of handy. And for me, always, always, a bottle of Benadryl. <laughs> because okay. all that other stuff makes me allergic. <laughs> and you sneeze. And I sneeze. And there goes my shot. I could go on and on, but that's more than enough for people to think about. Yeah, it's maybe a little late for that warning. 
However, maybe a little caveat here though. This list is fairly comprehensive. And like most comprehensive things, it can become overwhelming. But perhaps we should try and pinpoint two aspects of this list. Try and identify where you are going to be doing your macro shooting. And that's both points, by the way. If you are working in the serenity of whatever your house location is to work as a studio, you can have everything you want, including the kitchen sink if it fits in the photograph. The scene changes if you're out in the field and you're crawling under prickly bushes and branches and things that bite. You might now want to refer to the principles that we've sort of talked about with the various components of this and then try and jerry-rig it or fabricate it or improvise because you don't really you don't need all the stuff you can make other stuff work if you know what you're trying to achieve pretty much is all that i have to say on the whole topic so i'm going to say at this point thanks as always to all our listeners i'm gordon and i'm ross thank you for listening to the make better photos and videos podcast We will speak to you again soon.